Today on Footnoting History, we'll be talking about the artist Caravaggio and his life of crime. I'm Samantha. Welcome to Footnoting History. Today, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the artist Caravaggio. Now, I remember first hearing about Caravaggio in a high school art history class, and at the time I was fascinated by this man who had paintings rejected because he used prostitutes to portray the Virgin Mary, and who was eventually exiled from Rome and died in exile, but I knew very little about his crimes and about his life, and at the time, although I was fascinated, I had neither the time nor really the resources to find out more about him. And so today I've taken the time to indulge that personal desire to learn more about the artist, and I hope that what I've learned will be as interesting for you as it was for me. I'd like to note today that although Caravaggio was a brilliant artist and has some really amazing um, groundbreaking work, I'm going to be focusing on his life and especially his crimes, not really his art. So my story begins in September 1571 when Michelangelo Marisi was born in the village of Caravaggio for which he would later take his name. The Marisi family split their time between the village and the nearby city of Milan. Caravaggio's father was a master mason, successful, but a craftsman for all that. His maternal grandfather was of slightly higher caliber. Though not a nobleman, he held a position of respect and authority within the village community. Both men, however, would die of plague when the future artist was only five years old, leaving the youth, along with his three younger siblings, to be raised by their mother, who lived on a modest income generated by family land. When Michelangelo was 13, he was apprenticed for a period of four years to an artist in Milan. It seems that Caravaggio gained little from his apprenticeship aside from the right to call himself a painter. His mature style bore no resemblance to that of his master, and he never used the conventional techniques taught in that workshop. Caravaggio's earliest surviving work, which hails from his time in Rome, already exuded the forceful spot style for which Caravaggio became known, but is otherwise rather crude. This lack of technique, combined with the rapid pace at which he later attained mastery of his art, suggests that Caravaggio was largely self-taught. Indeed, the years of Caravaggio's apprenticeship were difficult ones for the Marisi clan. The wealthiest remaining members of the family died in the 1580s, and by 1590 we see Michelangelo, along with his brother, Giovanni Battista Marisi, who would later become a priest, selling the majority of their property to clear family debts. When their mother died in 1592, her property was divided evenly between her three surviving children. But while her younger children remained in the area, Caravaggio cut off his ties with his home, sold his portion of the property, and moved away from his childhood home never to return. Later, when his brother visited Rome, Michelangelo claimed not to know him. Initially, the young man went to Milan, a city well known for its violence and prostitution. Caravaggio's earliest biographers, two of whom had actually known the artist in person, suggest that the young artist left Milan after having bad interactions with the underworld there. One even suggests that he fled the country 
after committing a murder, but these details cannot be independently confirmed. In any case, we do know that Caravaggio moved to Rome in 1592. It was there he would establish himself as a talented artist. But while he was there, he would also become involved with a whole new criminal underworld. Caravaggio arrived in Rome shortly after the election of a new pope, Clement VIII. The new pontiff was concerned to continue the Catholic counter-reformation, but he was somewhat less militant than his predecessors and allowed, for example, artists to paint classical works. Nevertheless, he took his duties as the Bishop of Rome very seriously. Among other things, he took measures to curb prostitution, forbade carrying weapons in public, and outlawed dueling. The papal sbirri, uh, who were effectively a police force, were used to enforce these rules and were given wide-ranging powers. Punishments were gruesome and could be carried out publicly to deter other potential offenders. As part of Clement's plan to glorify the church, he transformed Rome into the artistic capital of Europe. Hoping to find fortune in the city, artists from around Europe piled into the artist's quarter, which quickly became one of the most overcrowded and disorderly places in the city. Among them came the young Michelangelo Merdisi. Caravaggio lived his earliest years in Rome in the artist's quarter, but he moved from room to room and from one artistic shop to another, probably partially because of his quick temper and quarrelsome attitude. Caravaggio resented the low-level work he did for these artists. Therefore, he did some work on his own using the only models he could afford, himself, his friend, the fellow artist and ruffian from Sicily, Mario Minetti, and prostitutes. Even in these early days in Rome, Caravaggio got into unspecified trouble, which caused his employers to conceal his presence in their shop, lest any association with the troublemaker reflect on them. After about eight months in Rome, Maurice was hospitalized for obscure reasons and then struck out on his own. In spite of his ingenuity, Caravaggio struggled and was forced to seek help from an art dealer to sell his paintings. This dealer brought him to the attention of Cardinal Del Monte, one of the artist's most important patrons. The Cardinal would house Caravaggio and provide him with crucial contacts within the church. The two paintings Caravaggio initially sold to the Cardinal, the Gypsy Fortune Teller, and the Card Sharps, created a whole new genre of painting, the low-life drama. Both of the paintings show wealthy young men being robbed or cheated by common miscreants. Thus, they had a moral that would appeal to the clergy. They show that young men who gave in to vices would face misfortune. These subjects were also ones that the artist presumably knew too well, though whether he himself was the young gambler or the, or the card shark is harder to determine. The time that Caravaggio spent in the house of Cardinal Del Monte was some of the most serene of his life. They also gave him the opportunity to establish himself as a talented, inventive painter. The Cardinal was an educated man, likable, a philanthropist, and a lover of the arts. However, he was also known for his vices, namely gambling and fraternization with courtesans. One biographer would accuse him of being a closeted gay man living in a pleasure palace. This tale, though almost certainly apocryphal, has influenced the image of Caravaggio, who many would assume was gay. While it is possible that Caravaggio consorted with men, there is no evidence that Cardinal Del Monte was anything more than a much-needed father figure in the life of the young painter.
The security that he had in this phase of his life encouraged Caravaggio to experiment with his art and even to attempt styles that did not suit his own darker tastes. Yet, in spite of his good fortune at having secured the patronage of Cardinal Del Monte, Carol van Mander, a Dutch painter living in Rome, noted, and here I quote, He does not pursue his studies steadfastly, so that after a fortnight's work he will swagger about for a month or two with a sword at his side and a servant following him. From one ball court to the next, ever ready to engage in a fight or argument, with the result that it is impossible to get along with him. While he had moved up in the world, Caravaggio did not forget where he came from, and continued to consort with his old friends, most of whom were artists, but many of whom were also criminals. He also continued to use prostitutes as models. Caravaggio also seems to have retained the belligerence that got him into trouble in Milan, and he took advantage of his relationship with the cardinal to get away with carrying a sword, which you may remember was illegal in Rome at the time. His position with the cardinal may have also convinced Caravaggio that he had become part of the elite, and that he deserved to be treated with the respect accorded to aristocracy. His sense of his own importance would be one of his many problems. Cardinal Del Monte helped Caravaggio secure his first prominent commissions in Roman churches. The painter's continued success inspired resentment among other artists who disliked his dark, realistic style. One such artist was Giovanni Baglioni, one of Caravaggio's earliest biographers. He lashed out at Caravaggio by displaying a parody of one of Caravaggio's most unique paintings entitled Omnia Vincit Amor, or Love Conquers All. A second parody of the same work would imply that Caravaggio was guilty of sodomy, an action punishable by death in 17th century Rome. Maurice was never one to sit idly by while he was insulted. So, in 1603, after Baglioni had completed an ill-received altarpiece, Caravaggio began to circulate a number of mean-spirited poems about the other artist, and about his most significant patron. Baglioni responded by bringing Caravaggio to court, accusing him of criminal libel, a crime that was punishable by seven years to life rowing in the papal fleet. Caravaggio and several of his friends were seized by the papal police in September 1603, two weeks after the allegation of libel was made. The trial was not going well for Caravaggio and his compatriots, when suddenly, two weeks after the arrest, Caravaggio was released from prison under a guarantee of the French ambassador. He was not allowed to leave his residence without permission, and the hearing was supposed to continue a month later. Another of Caravaggio's wealthy supporters ensured that the artist would take no action against Baglioni or his supporters. In the end, the case was dropped. Some time later, one of Caravaggio's friends, who had been named in the suit but had escaped arrest, was himself arrested for threatening behavior towards Baglioni and his friends. Caravaggio left Rome for a time, but had returned by 1604. When he came back, his life was increasingly unsettled, especially after the libel trial. When he returned, he moved into rented accommodation rather than living with a powerful patron. Part of the problem was the style of his work itself. Most of his paintings were designed to appeal to the poor, and they glorified an aesthetic way of life just at a moment when these sometimes harsh ideas, which were popular in the earlier part of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, were being replaced by grand proto-Baroque ideals. There weren't many within the church eager to commission works 
that in effect criticized their way of life, even if they were of an exceedingly high caliber. As Caravaggio watched less talented artists surpass him in the hierarchy of Roman patronage, he became more aggressive. We hear that one day he entered St. Peter's, cut his way into a secured area where one of his rivals was working, though only the assistant was present at the time, whereupon he commented that the painting was as bad as he had expected. On another, better documented occasion, Caravaggio got into an argument with a waiter at a local restaurant. Displeased with the artichokes he had been served, he smashed the plate in the man's face and came after him with a sword, an offense for which he was summarily brought to court, but again escaped punishment. Caravaggio would increasingly find himself in trouble with the law. He was arrested on multiple occasions for being out at night armed illicitly with a sword and dagger. On top of that, he was detained on suspicion of having thrown rocks at police officers. Another time, he was brought to court for defacing the door of a woman and her daughter. This crime was not an uncommon one in Rome at the time, and was a horrible insult. The door of the home represented the woman's reputation. By defacing it, the criminal, usually a man, showed that the resident, usually a woman, was somehow soiled. One final incident in July 1605 is quite telling. A notary named Mariano Pasqualione accused Caravaggio of causing him grievous bodily harm by sneaking up behind him and slashing him with a sword. The notary reports that he had been previously in conflict with Caravaggio over a prostitute called Lena, whom he referred to as one of Michelangelo's women. One of Caravaggio's recent biographers, Andrew Graham Dixon, convincingly argues that this evidence suggests that Caravaggio was functioning as a pimp in the period when his commissions were drying up. That would explain why the artist suddenly decided to live on his own, and why he was not producing on the contracts he did have. It would also explain his conflicts with the police and his tendency to be out and armed at night. It might also be connected with his act of defacing the door of the two women previously mentioned, Perhaps one of them had been working for him and had decided to quit or had switched to a different pimp. It would also explain the enmity between Caravaggio and Renuncio Tomassoni, who was a well-known pimp and had at one point controlled Fielde Melandroni, one of Caravaggio's regular models. Things were not looking good for Caravaggio in July 1605, at which point he skipped bail and fled to Genoa. He returned a month later, signed a judicial peace with, with Pasqualione, which had been arranged by mutual friends. The peace was signed in the antechamber of Scipione Borghese, who was a huge fan of Caravaggio and would soon collect another painting from him. Although Caravaggio had been let off easy, he was still finding himself in trouble. Just four days after the Pasqualione case ended, the artist was hauled to court again for throwing stones at his landlady's house in the middle of the night and trying to break her shutters. This act came in retribution when he discovered that upon his return to Rome, that she had taken advantage of his absence to evict him, taking his possessions in lieu of rent. This case too was dismissed and Caravaggio found a new home. Professionally, things weren't going well either. Caravaggio painted two major commissions and had both of them rejected. Mancini, a contemporary, wondered if these rejections caused the painter's subsequent problems. Caravaggio's greatest misstep took place on May 28, 1606, when the painter killed Renuncio Tomassoni, 
a longtime enemy. It's not clear exactly what happened. The killing definitely took place in a tennis court. For this reason, it's often been assumed that the two started fighting because of a gambling debt. That assumption, however, is far from obvious. There were eight men gathered at the court that day, the two principals, along with three supporters for each of them. The two apparently fought one-on-one -on -one until Caravaggio wounded Tomassoni in the upper thigh, piercing his femoral artery and killing him. At this point, Tomassoni's brother and the others joined in before retreating to a barber surgeon. All of the combatants, with the exception of one of Caravaggio's friends who was wounded on the scene and the dead man, fled Rome. These details make it seem like the two parties had met for the purposes of a fight. Perhaps they were gathered for a duel, which was illegal in Rome at that time. The size of the parties makes this is, the size of the parties makes this seem like a likely scenario. Um, since a normal duel would have included the two combatants, a second for each of them, and witnesses. It's unclear, however, why they were dueling. The wound that Caravaggio dealt to his foe may suggest that he was aiming for the groin, hoping perhaps to castrate his enemy, not to kill him. If that's the case, perhaps we're looking again at a conflict inspired by sex, but all of this is circumstantial. All of the men who fled were found guilty in the court of law and were sentenced to exile, though all but Caravaggio would eventually gain the right to return. Caravaggio, however, was subject to a bando capital, which meant that if he were to return to the Papal States, anyone would have the right to kill him and would receive a bounty for doing so. And so, our main man found himself seriously injured and on the run. After staying with some wealthy friends of his family and sending a painting to his major supporter in the Papal Court, perhaps hoping to facilitate his return, Caravaggio showed up in Naples. While he was there, he painted at least three major works, which were much better received in that city than his work had been in Rome. He quickly became one of the most sought-after artists in Naples, and probably could have done well there. Instead, he went to Malta to become a knight of St. John. Perhaps Caravaggio hoped that joining the order would be a shortcut back to Rome. It would have ended the capital sentence against him. Or perhaps he craved the prestige of becoming a knight. Whatever his motivation, joining the order was easier said than done. Normally, to become a member, a man had to prove his noble ancestry. Caravaggio had none. However, it was possible for an exception to be made for a non-nobleman if the head of the order petitioned the Pope, and that's what happened. Caravaggio quickly found favor in Malta using his artistic prowess and was admitted to the order upon completion of an altarpiece of the beheading of St. John the Baptist for them in July of 1608. A month later, Caravaggio and five other men were involved in a fight which resulted in the serious wounding of a noble knight. The painter, along with the one other man, were deemed to be the leaders and were immediately incarcerated. The other four would be punished by prison sentences. The two ringleaders, however, were to be defrocked. Or at least we think that would have been Caravaggio's fate. Except somehow he managed to escape from the prison, a feat that had never before been achieved and must have required at least one accomplice on the inside. From there, the painter fled to Sicily. He found protection in Syracuse in exchange for painting, he then moved to Messina and to Palermo, again painting for protection from the local elite. 
Reportedly, though, hunted by the knights, he never felt safe on the island. He soon moved back to Naples, where he found protection once again from his grandfather's friends, who it seemed smoothed things over with the Knights of St. John. When settled in Naples, Caravaggio seems to have felt somewhat more secure, so he let his guard down and visited a tavern that was a notorious place for men to go in search of male companionship. When he left the tavern, he was attacked by four men who had followed him there. Three of them held him down while the last slashed his face. This type of an injury, known as a suffragio, was common in Renaissance Italy, and it was a punishment for insulting one's honor or reputation. It seems likely that it was inflicted by him on the man that, had, that he had come into conflict with in Malta. The painter was grievously wounded. He would spend the next six months convalescing in Naples, painting during that time two final pictures, which art historians, who have a far more discerning eye than I, describe as having been painted by a man who was seriously injured, unable to hold his brush properly, and possibly partially blinded. Finally, in the second week of July, 1610, Caravaggio received his pardon from the Pope and, still injured, set off for Rome by sea. The ship left him at Palo to return to Rome by land with three paintings which he owed to Scipio Borghese in return for helping secure his pardon. But there was some sort of scuffle, and the artist was arrested before his goods could be unloaded. The boat set off to sea, headed for Port Ercole. After obtaining his release, Caravaggio seems to have set off to catch up with the boat and his precious paintings. The difficult journey, however, were too much for him, and he became ill and died within a day of reaching Port Ercole. He is buried there in an unmarked grave. Shortly after his death, powerful men from Malta to Lombardy began to scramble to obtain his last three unclaimed paintings. Caravaggio had been a difficult, deeply troubled man. He seems to have been unable to keep himself out of trouble for whatever reason, but his art would endure. He influenced almost every major European artist in the years to come and is still thought of as one of the most inventive painters of the Italian Renaissance. We can see that he was troubled. We can see that he got into one conflict after another, that he pushed the boundaries both artistically and in his personal life, but we don't know why. Was it simply that he didn't know any better? He hadn't had any male role models, as one uh, biographer suggests? Was it that he was a deeply troubled, unsalvageable man? Are there people even like that? I don't know. I kind of hope not. Or was it, as some biographers suggest, that he was deeply conflicted about himself? Was he perhaps gay and really ashamed of himself and unable to survive because of that? We'll never know. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.